So if you have a Bible, please do turn to Hebrews 4. Have a look at verse 15. Uh, There's also a handout that's included on the email, uh, but everything that's on the handout will also hopefully appear on the screen for you here too, so you can use the handout or not as you like. The title of this morning's message is The Heart of Christ in Heaven. Or to borrow a slightly longer title from an old writer called Thomas Goodwin, who wrote an entire book on this single verse, The Heart of Christ in Heaven for Sinners on Earth. Now, I wonder, in all of the busyness and the activity of your day so far, have you given any particular thought to how Christ's heart is disposed towards you today? Most of us, of course, have a pretty clear idea of what Christ's heart was like towards sinners and sufferers during his time on earth. We only have to open up one of the four Gospels to see, writ large across their pages, his immeasurable compassion for broken people. The way he lived amongst them as one of them. How easily and freely people felt they could approach him and ask him for help. His meekness and gentleness as he spoke with them. His quickness to reach out and touch them and heal them. The ease with which he sympathised with them in their pain and suffering. I doubt any of us would struggle to recognise how tender and compassionate his love was for sinners and sufferers in the days that he walked on the earth. But what about his heart towards us now that he's in heaven? How does he feel about broken people like you and me today now that he sits on his throne in glory? Here's my suspicion. Here's where my heart often struggles. I think we're prone to imagine that at least in some way, he's not as warm and tender in his affections for us today. That he must surely be at least a little bit more detached and distant in his love for us now, now that he's surrounded by his angels in glory. Surely he can't quite have the same kind of sympathetic understanding towards us in our trials and sufferings as he would have done when he walked shoulder to shoulder with people on earth. Have you ever thought or felt like that? Even just in a subconscious, unspoken kind of way? My one and only goal this morning, and more importantly, the central goal of this verse that we're going to look at, is to convince us that in spite of all of his heavenly majesty, Christ's heart beats just as strongly and compassionately towards us today as it ever did on earth. That the heart of Christ in heaven has not lost one drop of its sweet and tender affection for sinners and sufferers on earth. That's what this morning's message is all about. As Thomas Goodwin wrote at the start of his book, I have chosen this text as that which above any other speaks his heart most and sets out the frame and workings of it towards sinners, and that so feelingly that it does, as it were, take our hands and lay them upon Christ's breast, and let us feel how his heart beats and his affections yearn toward us, even now he is in glory. This verse, Goodwin says, allows us to lay our hands upon the risen Christ's chest, to feel the strong beat of his heart for us, to feel the strength of his affections and longings for us, even now as he sits enthroned in heaven. So please, if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews 4.15 and let's lay our hands together on his chest and feel the mighty heartbeat of his love for us. 
Here's what Hebrews 4.15 says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with us, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now I'm going to keep things really simple this morning. I'm just going to answer two key questions. First of all, what does this verse teach us about the heart of Christ in heaven towards sinners and sufferers on earth? And secondly, how should this affect us? So first of all, what does this verse teach us about the heart of Christ in heaven? It tells us, first of all, that he sympathises with our weaknesses. This word weaknesses here encompasses everything that might in any way discourage us or cause us to suffer. It includes the many afflictions that we meet with each day that come at us from outside of us. Things like sickness, poverty, persecution, injustice, weariness, sleeplessness and many things more. And it also encompasses all those things that afflict us on the inside. Fear, grief, doubt, depression, loneliness, guilt, temptation and so much more. Essentially, any and every cause of suffering that assails us while we live as broken people in a broken world. So just think of your greatest source of heartache and pain right now. Think of all of your sources of heartache and pain. They're all included here in this word weaknesses. And Christ, we're told, sympathises with every single one of them. It's not just that he sees and knows all our weaknesses, he actually sympathises with us in them. He is, as the King James used to translate this verse, touched with the feeling of our infirmities, which means he doesn't just look down on us from heaven in a cool and detached way, seeing our sufferings but unmoved by them. No, he literally suffers with us. That's what the word sympathise means. He is touched by all that touches us. Even now, as he sits enthroned in heaven, his heart is feelingly drawn into our distress and overflows with sympathy towards us. This is the heart of Christ in heaven towards his people on earth. This is the heartbeat of our heavenly high priest. And did you notice, in fact, that that's how he's referred to in this verse as our high priest? priest? How, we might ask, do these things go together? What has his role as high priest got to do with his sympathising with our weaknesses? Well, it turns out it has everything to do with it, because sympathy was an essential part of the high priestly role in the Old Testament. And you see this in just a couple of verses uh, on from here in Hebrews 5 verses 1 and 2. There we read that the high priest was appointed to do two main things. He was appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And secondly, he was appointed to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. So here were the two most important qualifications for a high priest in the Old Testament, atonement and sympathy. The high priest had to be able to offer a sacrifice to God for sin and he had to be able to deal gently with sinners. Those were the two most essential skills on the job application form for high priest. So, so no earthly high priest, as he passed through the interview process, if there was an interview process, 
was ever particularly chosen for his deep wisdom or great power or superior holiness. No, every high priest was chosen and qualified in large part according to the compassion that was in him. He was chosen for his ability to deal gently with ignorant and wayward sinners. Which means, now get this, Christ would cease to be qualified as our heavenly high priest today if he didn't still have a heart of sympathy and gentleness towards wayward sinners. He would be disqualified even now in heaven if he didn't still have heartfelt compassion on us in all of our weaknesses and most especially in our struggles with sin. Which brings us, I think, to what really is the wonder of all wonders in Hebrews 4.15. And that is that Christ, our heavenly high priest, has a special sympathy towards us in our battles with sin. Our sin elicits a special tenderness from him. Certainly, he's full of sympathy in all of our weaknesses and afflictions, but he is especially sympathetic towards us when we are afflicted by our own sin. Listen to Thomas Goodwin again. Your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Yea, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall only upon the sin to free you of it by its ruin and destruction, but his affections shall be the more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore fear not. What shall separate us from Christ's love? No sin can separate us from his love for us today if we've made him our saviour. And whenever we go to him with our sins, no matter how big or terrible or awful they might be, he will always deal with us gently, with a heart full of sympathy as one who sees his own beloved child suffering under a terrible disease. Dane Ortland writes, consider what all this means. When we sin, we're encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because he will know just how to receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lush, lash out the way many of our parents did. And all this restraint on his part is not because he has a diluted view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint simply flows from his tender heart for his people. Hebrews is not just telling us that instead of scolding us, Jesus loves us. He's telling us the kind of love he has. Rather than dispensing grace to us from on high, he gets down with us. He puts his arm around us. He deals with us in the way that is just what we need. He deals gently with us. But how can this be? Even if he is so wonderfully gracious and merciful, can it really be that he actually sympathizes with us in our failings? in our repeated surrendering to temptations, in our daily battle with sin. A lot of the time I feel like beating myself up for being such a failure. How can he who never sinned, and more than that, who now sits enthroned in glory, 
How can he stoop down into the dirt with us and deal so gently with us, even sympathising with our sinful condition? Well, the answer is given here in the second half of verse 15, and it is because he understands our temptations. He understands our temptations. He sympathises with us in all of our weaknesses because in every respect he has been tempted as we are. Here is the wonder of the incarnation, that the eternal Son of God took on flesh and became a man, and as our fellow human being, he faced for himself the very same trials and temptations that we now face. He knows what it is to be human. He knows how it feels to be human. During his 30-something years of life on earth, he experienced firsthand every kind of sorrow and affliction. He experienced poverty, hunger, nakedness, weariness, injustice, cruelty, slander, abandonment, just to name a few. And his soul was troubled by every human emotion, by sorrow, grief, loneliness, anguish, spiritual separation, and so much more. All these trials and troubles tested and pressed upon his mind and heart, just as they press upon yours and mine. He remembers what it's like to experience all these things. He knows just what you're going through firsthand, which is why, notice here, he actually sympathizes with us and not just for us. Think of those times when you've tried to comfort a friend who's going through some kind of trial that you haven't personally been through. Of course you do your best to try and help them, but you can't honestly say to them that you completely understand what they're going through, what they're feeling. You can sympathize for them as one looking on from the outside, but you can't sympathize with them as one who can truly enter into their pain. But in every trial we face, in every weakness, Christ can sympathize with us. As one who knows firsthand how it feels, he can enter into our pain. So that we need, we need never ask, can he relate to this particular trial that I'm going through today? Can he relate to this particular sorrow that I'm feeling right now? Can he relate to this particular temptation that I'm facing? Yes. Yes, he can, because he was tempted as we are in all points, in every way. And not by accident, but by divine design. This was God's express plan and purpose. As it says in Hebrews 2 verse 17, Christ had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. It's only because he himself has suffered in every way when tried and tempted that he is now truly qualified and able to help those who are being tried and tempted themselves. God wanted to give us a high priest who could sympathize with us in every sorrow and that is what he has given us in Christ. But there is one caveat Hebrews 4.15, he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, I'll be honest, I used to think that these final three words, perhaps even up to this week, actually, 
yet without sin, were like a bucket of icy cold water being thrown over the comforting warmth of this verse. He sympathises with us in our weaknesses. Wonderful. Oh, yet without sin. How can he then truly sympathise with us in all of our troubles and sorrows when often our greatest sorrows come from our continued battle with sin? Surely nothing really troubles our hearts and breaks our hearts more as Christians than the repeated realisation of our own indwelling sin. But if Jesus never knew what it was to be troubled by sin and overwhelmed with temptation, how can he truly sympathise with us when we're tempted? Is there then a whole area of weakness and a source of sorrow in our life that he can't really have first-hand sympathy with because he never sinned? No. No, not at all. Let me just give you three quick-fire reasons why his sympathy is not limited or shut out by our sin. First of all, as verse 15 tells us, he was tempted in every respect as we are. Though he never sinned, he faced every kind of temptation. Never has Satan so set his sights on one person as he did Christ to assail and assault him with every kind of temptation. That by any means he might make Christ sin and therefore make him fail in his mission to save sinners. Added to that and part of that, the fact that Jesus never gave in to sin means that he knows the power of temptation far better than you and I could ever know it. C.S. Lewis once compared it to a man walking into an ever-increasing wind. Once the wind of temptation grows strong enough, every one of us gives in and lies down. And so we never know what it would have felt like to have stood in its path even an hour longer. But Jesus never lay down. He resisted and resisted and resisted and never gave in. And so no one knows the power of temptation better, better than he does. No one is more qualified to sympathise with us than uh, when we are tempted. Secondly, he was continually moved to compassion as he saw the terrible effects of sin. No one's heart was ever moved more with pity and sympathy for sinners as his was each and every day as he witnessed the full extent of people's brokenness and pain. And so when you and I are suffering under the effects of sin, whether it's our own sin or someone else's, Christ can sympathise with us like no other. And thirdly and finally, he tasted the full bitterness of sin when its curse and penalty was laid on him at Calvary. At the cross, he knew what it was firsthand to have a heart pierced and wounded by sin. He felt what it was like to have the guilt of sin bear down on him like a crushing weight on his shoulders. He knew what it was to feel forsaken by God in a way that those he died to save will never, thankfully, have to experience for themselves. Can he then sympathise with us when we are deeply troubled and distressed by so many temptations, by sins remaining hold over us, by guilt and shame, by feelings of brokenness and separation? He can sympathise with us in it all because he has experienced it all in every respect as we have. And best of all, 
he experienced it all without sinning. And that is good news, not bad, because it means he is able not only to tenderly and wholeheartedly sympathize with us, he's also able actually to save us from our sins, to take away our guilt, to pay sin's penalty, to redeem our life from the pit through the perfect sacrifice of himself. As one writer puts it, not only can he alone pull us out of the hole of sin, he alone desires to climb in and bear our burdens. And his heart towards us will never change. His sympathy will never run out. He will always pity us and deal gently with us and offer tender help to us as those who are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, his family, his brothers and sisters, his kin. This is the heart of Christ towards you and I on earth today, and it will be forever. Secondly, finally, and much more briefly this morning, how should this affect us? How should all of this affect us? Well, I trust that it has already begun to deeply affect us as we've seen what this verse has to tell us about the heart of Christ in heaven towards us on earth. But let me just draw out two particular effects from, of, that we've heard today, uh, that what we've heard today should have on us. Two effects. Firstly, it should squash all our fears and doubts about the tenderness of his love for us. Perhaps you're experiencing trials and difficulties in your life right now that you feel might in some way be proof that he doesn't care for you. Or perhaps, like I mentioned at the start, you've long held on to this unspoken fear that now he's in heaven. Perhaps he's just too high and exalted to really understand and sympathize with you in your earthly struggles. Might not he have forgotten something of our brokenness and of the pain that we experience living in this broken world? Mightn't he have lost some measure of sympathy for us now that he's no longer here with us? Let this morning's verse banish all such fears and doubts. Let it assure you that Christ's heart still beats just as mightily with love for sinners and sufferers, with love for you as ever it did on earth. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. His heart does not change. He is still the very same Christ that we meet in the pages of the Gospels. He who took such tender care of broken and weary souls that he would not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smouldering wick. So still now from heaven, his heart is just as tender towards us still moved with compassion at our brokenness, still just as quick to come alongside us, to come alongside you, to gently care for you and console you and help you. His love today is of the same measure as that love that led him to the cross. It suffers no decay. It is as powerfully and readily poured out today in caring for those he has saved as it was on the very day that he laid down his life to save us. Having loved us so far and loved us so much, his love for us will never ever fade. And so whatever your trial or trouble might be today, let this verse be like a well of comfort. 
from which you can drink streams of loving consolation straight from the heart of Christ in heaven. Are you sick? Are you weary? Are you poor? Are you persecuted? Are you lonely? Are you sorrowful? Are you beset with temptation? Are you weighed down with guilt? Is your life like a valley of troubles and tears? He sympathizes with you in all your weaknesses. He is touched by your sorrows. He knows what you're feeling and his heart is filled with compassion for you. So lean on him, rest on him. Be comforted by his love for you. Remember, there is no other friend in all the world who cares for you so deeply as Jesus. And then, with that confidence, draw near to him, expectant of his mercy and help. And that's the second way that Hebrews 4.15 is meant to positively affect us today. It's meant to encourage us to run to him with all our sins and weaknesses. And we know that because verse 15 is the ground and the anchor of the invitation that follows in verse 16. Have a look at these two verses together. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't want to say too much about verse 16 this morning. Who knows, maybe it'll be another one verse wonder sometime, but it's clearly where verse 15 is meant to lead us. So let's just answer one more question with the help of this next verse. Why does Christ want us to know that he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses? because he wants to draw us to him. He wants to overcome any hard and erroneous thoughts we might have about him. He wants to allure us, to persuade us to run to him in order to receive his help. Verse 16 is an invitation to come to a throne of grace, but verse 15 is his promise that the one we'll find sitting on that throne has an endless heart of grace. Let's pray.